0: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you live on tape as I always do these days from my house in Brooklyn. Very pleased to be speaking with Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Do we still call it The Atlantic Monthly, Jeffrey? No, we don't.
1: We're The Atlantic every minute of the day.
0: Every minute of the day. You guys We're are The Atlantic all the time. You've been doing great work. Uh, I'm on your site many times a day as are many other people, it turns out. You guys have had a, a really fantastic run. I've always wanted to talk to you, um, but this is particularly opportune because you guys uh, take take this in the spirit in which it's intended. Um, I don't think that I thought The Atlantic was going to be a must read for me and lots of other people at the beginning of the pandemic. It has absolutely become that. Um, I'm not going to ask you if you thought that was going to be the case, but I would like you to explain <laughs> why it's the case. That's funny.
1: Um, it's you know, it's interesting when you have a strong. I'm sorry, I hate the word, but I'm going to use it brand identity Uh, when you have a strong brand identity that works in your favor when your identity is for very thoughtful, involved, intense argument, narrative, ancient history, going back to the Civil War. All that all that sort of thing, which we can talk about. But, you know, then then people you get fixed in people's minds as, as one thing. We're still that thing. Obviously, we have a great print magazine. Uh, those stories become digital stories as soon as we put them online, obviously. Uh, but we have a great print magazine. We do specialize in another term I hate, long-form journalism, which just means stories with more, more words than other stories. Uh, we, we do specialize in that. We do specialize in the argument narrative, the big idea, the magazine of the American idea, and so on. But we have built over the past years a very potent uh, news-oriented web operation, digital journalism operation. One of the things that, I, because people have asked me this question before over the last month, month and a half, it's like, how how did you guys um, sort of step up or, or or why do you seem everywhere right now? And one of the answers is that we've been building this site to be informed by Atlantic Magazine values, but going at internet speed. And the other is, I think, um, we've had three years of practice of the Trump administration. We're based in Washington. We're obviously very focused on um, this story out of the White House, which is, among other things, frenetic. Uh, So we've gotten our tempo up. We've gotten the intensity up. I did not know what we were practicing for, but it turns out we were practicing for the coronavirus, which is also, obviously, uh, very much a Trump story and an election story and and, and all the rest. So I just think we're, um, I just think we were ready for this and uh, it helped, I'm sorry to go on at length, but it helped that uh, we have great science writers, great health writers, great political analysts, and these were pre-existing conditions. So we didn't have to sort of scramble. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one of the things I had to do is get Ed Young to come back from, uh, uh book leave but uh yeah i, I don't want to talk
0: about that but let's let's set up let's let's back up and give some context um sure. your business model has been for a while was you could read as much of us as you want on the web for free you put up a paywall uh yep. last fall Thank um goodness. limited it to what i think five articles five free yep. articles yep. a month yep. which is sort of standard operating procedure now for, right. for publishers and then the pandemic hit um you put all of your pandemic stories in front of the paywall, you can continue to read all of those. So all the yeah. reasons you would continue to come to the Atlantic, you can still go to those for for free. Um, and then you announced you'd had a huge spike in in digital subscriptions and traffic. So I'd like to just lay that out before we even talk about the how you did it. Um, sure. You want you want you want to lay out the numbers for sure?
1: It? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not I'm not um, I'm not ready to to share all the numbers with. You yeah I mean I'm personally a big mouth but I have colleagues who are more discreet and would like to talk about these things uh, in a more holistic way but I'm I'm very excited about where 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 we are I, I did put out to the staff and a memo that got out I did put out to the staff that in in March we did thirty almost thirty seven thousand actually so thirty six five thirty six thousand five hundred or so uh, digital subscriptions full price one by one not bulk purchases.
0: Those are people who came to you and said, I want to read this pandemic coverage. I'm getting it for free. I'm going to pay you anyway, because I want yeah. more stuff.
1: Yeah. Oh, open parenthetical, by the way, very quickly. I had a lot of faith. I mean, I, I have, I have a lot of faith in quality journalism and I have a lot of faith in the audience for quality journalism. So I didn't doubt at all that if we put our stories in front of the paywall, which we have to do anyway, because it's the right thing to do. I had no doubt that, that our readers would reward us for this gesture by coming to us and saying, okay, you know what, we want to support this, this effort. And that turned out to be the case. I mean, did we leave some subscriptions on the table? Maybe. It, it doesn't matter because, like, we had to do it. It's not; it wasn't an issue. Um, it's the right thing to do. And
0: but, then and your overall traffic is way up, and getting you. Uh, there was a good Neiman Lab piece that sort of puts you. At like, I think you're doing around ninety million. Uh, yeah. Well,
1: last month was eighty-seven million unique visitors. And for uh, context,
0: that's kind of the Washington Post level in a non-pandemic.
1: Right. Right. And and I want to be very explicitly clear here. You know, we are doing this with. Um, a hundred and four, roughly 140 or so journalists, 145 um, Washington Post newsroom is 800 or so. The New York Times is 1700 AP Reuters, Bloomberg, et cetera, in the 2000s. You know, I mean, so we're we're I believe we're punching way above our weight, obviously, just just person for person. But yeah, there was a wave that carried everybody's traffic higher. Ours was probably, we spiked sort of the most. We're usually in the 30 million or so, 32 million unique visitors a month range, which is great. I mean, when I joined the Atlantic as a writer 13 years ago, we were about you know a million and a half or something like that. So it's nice to see how far we've come, but that was extraordinary. I think in the coming months, we'll settle in somewhere probably north of 50 or 60 or 70 for a while. And trick and i don't want to get ahead of the conversation but the trick obviously is to retain the loyalty of those new visitors to the atlantic um, and tell them more about the Atlantic and what we are and, and hope that we can convert them into permanent readers and then subscribers.
0: So you were describing before, you know, in, in my words, you know, we've been going to the gym a lot and it turns out we were ready to run a race <laughs> when, when we had to. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're still, you know, you have a small staff compared to the Post and the Times right. or the a big Big by magazine standards, yep. but yeah. So how did you start Thinking about how to deploy that staff or redeploy them kinds of, I mean, some of it would be very obvious, right? Right about the pandemic. But even within that, (laughs) you know, how the mix of, you know, very short hits versus more thoughtful stuff. Yeah. Um, Did you get people off of beats entirely and say, I know that you normally cover this, but now you're our whatever writer?
1: Yeah, it was about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, I guess, where I sort of said to the staff, this is not particularly perspicacious, obviously. It seemed like where the world was heading. I said, I think we're just doing coronavirus for a while now. And so uh, yeah, everybody, look, it's the biggest story. Let me not state this. It's perhaps the biggest story since World War II. Every, it touches every aspect of human life. So everybody who's on a different subject, a different beat, it, it, they... they coronavirus is gonna inform what they write about. So our culture team is writing about culture, but it's writing about it in the shadow of the pandemic, helping people find things to do during the pandemic and so on. But um, stepping all the way back, I mean, the interesting thing, and one of the blessings of being The Atlantic is that we don't have a lot of homework that, that we have to do. Our readership, our core readership, expects very, very good writing, very, very smart analysis from us, but they're not expecting sports traffic and weather. We're not a commodity player. We're not, we're not, we're just giving people really, really smart things to read. So we have the luxury of picking and choosing our fights. Quick commodity hits are really not going to do it for us. Scoops are scoops. I love scoops, started the newspapers. You got a scoop, let's get it up on the site. Um, scoops of analysis also, you know, you could spend a little bit more time on those, but um, scoops of analysis are also great. Uh, but generally speaking, We have to just do the best story. We don't have to do the first story. And so repeatedly during the last five, six, seven uh, weeks, maybe even going back to late January, our writers have very consistently been ahead of the curve or even to some degree set the curve. I'm thinking of a piece. Yasha Monk wrote a piece uh, very, very early in this, relatively early in this, called Cancel Everything, when it was not assumed that that was a wise policy. And the piece actually got companies to rethink their policies it, it it sort of shifted the the discourse jim hamblin who happened uh, one of our science writers health writers who happens to be an md which is useful to have on your staff talked very early on about how there's a chance that most of us are going to get coronavirus
0: and it, and it changed yeah, the way the he, people what was the what was the headline on that one
1: You're likely you're likely to get coronavirus I, I think, think it was, was more I
0: think it was more emphatic than that someone was, was it was more emphatic? Emphatic? I can look it up.
1: Uh, uh everyone pre- is gonna get the everyone is going get the coronavirus yeah and that, that headline is an interesting headline we could discuss that yeah. um well one of the things that one of the things that all of our science and health writers are bringing is is extreme probity to this um and so there's been no hype around it um i mentioned ed young before his science writing on this has been has been fantastic as well and one of the things he does is just clearly illuminates the different paths this story could take for people without hype without sensationalism but people just want to know where we're heading and that seems to be coming back to the sort of how do you assign in this climate our value added can be take our very very smart writers and editors and ask them to help our readers understand where they might be in 5 10 20 30 days uh, two months the summer whatever
0: yeah and i think ed's piece are the ones that's i think most often are getting passed around, at least in, in my Twitter and Slack circles.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, we have a lot of pieces that are doing very well, it yes. is certainly a star.
0: What's your sense of, of how many people are encountering your journalism, maybe for the first time, or at least for the first time in years, or maybe he's popped in once a year or so? Yeah, well,
1: empirically, many, many more, obviously. Um, I've always said that one of the challenges, it's not just a challenge for us, it's for any publication, is when people come to your story sideways, through social, through sharing, through search, very often they don't know where they are. They know it's a, they read it on the internet. You know, they didn't know that it's on our site. One of the things we have to do is make sure that people understand that they're at the Atlantic when they're reading a story that their aunt shared on Facebook. Um, But I can tell anecdotally that we're developing new readership lanes just because I, I, I get the, my email address is public facing and um, I'm on Twitter and, and whatever. And so I can I can feel feel this kind of rush of, whoa, either who knew that the Atlantic did this? Uh, the Atlantic is really I- I hitting it out of the park and some like what a little bit of what is the Atlantic even? Because we are it's hard to call a publication that has, um, you know, half a million print subscription, you know, print distribution, 30 plus million uniques. It's hard to call it a, a, a niche publication, but relative to the number of humans on the planet, it, you know, it's not the biggest thing. And so it's nice to sort of watch new people discover it and people who know about it, but didn't think they could turn to it, as you pointed out for this kind of story uh, to come and say, wow, thanks a lot. It's, it's easy. It's good for us because it's always better to be the, um, be the publication that's surprising people with the depth uh, and energy of its coverage.
0: I have a hunch, and I don't know how you'd prove this out with at least without doing focus groups, is that there's a brand halo that comes with the Atlantic where people who have never encountered it, but just sort of know that it's an Oldish magazine or something that's respectable, yeah. and they may again like someone was passing around a Washington Times article on on Facebook yesterday and saying, "I can't believe the Washington Times would print this," and they don't know what the Washington Times is. I think they think it's the Post, but it sort of sounds <laughs> like it. Um, in the same way that the Economist for a long time sounded impressive and maybe it was English, and and there's just, or the I used to work at Forbes, and and yeah. for a long time people just assumed that Forbes and Fortune were important because they just had a vague notion of what it was. And I think yeah. that probably helps you now one way or the other.
1: Oh, oh, sure, sure. I mean, look, we've been around forever. A, B, our biggest competitive advantage is the ballast that the print magazine provides. You know, we, we do these, when our cover stories hit, they hit with a lot of force, obviously. And people hear about the Atlantic periodically. They're, they're less used to hearing about the Atlantic constantly. Like, a new, like you would hear about a newspaper. I think maybe that, that's
0: the kind of a point you're making. I, I, do, I do want to talk to you about how you guys are framing these stories and headlines. Um, I just wrote about this idea, um, and I want to come back to that. But first, we're going to take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors. Still here, Jeffrey Goldberg. Still editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, not The Monthly, just The Atlantic. Um, <laughs> we, we were talking about headlines briefly, and and I, I should actually look up the headline of everyone's going to get the coronavirus so we can have it accurately. Uh, hold on. I'll look it up. So you look it up while I talk. Um, I wrote a piece this week sort of looking at what the media got wrong or could have done better. And and in my mind, there's a couple different ways of thinking about it. One is relying on experts who who may or may not know what they're talking about because it's a brand new uh, event. It's all it's news to everyone. Um, and a lot of it was about packaging. And if you know, and, and it's, it's we can split it off into two things, but, but one thing I was thinking about a lot is we think something alarming is happening or it's about to happen. How do we convey that to an audience? How do we scare them without overly scaring them? And by the way, how do we balance the notion that we think it's going to happen and we should alert people versus we could also be wrong and what if we're wrong? Um, And I'm wondering how you think about that specifically for the pandemic and then maybe more broadly, how you guys are thinking about, we're going to have other news events like this. We're going to have other things where we think something bad could happen, but we're also not sure something bad could happen. And how you will think about framing that for readers going forward.
1: Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I happen to be particularly interested in this subject and back in 2017, late 2017, I went to Ed Young, one of our science writers we just discussed, and we started talking about this idea that I wanted to pursue when I was a writer uh, and didn't get to by the time I became editor. Are we ready for the next pandemic? That became a very, very long magazine piece that he did in 2018, which came to the conclusion that more or less, no, we're not ready for the next pandemic. It was done. The, the particular motivation was to um, was to frame it in the context of an administration that didn't seem to me to be ready. I had, uh, as a writer, as a reporter, I had covered president Obama fairly intensely for eight years and, um, was watching very carefully his management of the Ebola crisis. And, uh, that was the backdrop for that. So I am, uh, alarmist is the wrong word to describe it, uh, cause it's so loaded, but I think that, um, pandemics are the classic example of, of, of something that, uh, Treat it as if it's gonna be the worst possible thing and you hope for the best. And by treating it as the worst possible thing coming, you actually mitigate. Um, and obviously a big emphasis of our coverage has been to look at those lost two months, 70 days, whatever it is, when when Donald Trump and a lot of his echo chamber on the right was downplaying the possibilities here. So, um, you know, you, 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 you wanna be responsible. Um, and I think we've been responsible. You also want to say, look, looming on the horizon is this bad thing. It helps, as as the editor, it helps that I have faith in the geniuses who run our health and science coverage and, and, and all of the writers. Uh, it helps that Jim Hamblin, for instance, is an MD who covers health for us. But, uh, you know, without getting too far into the conversation, unless you want to, about headlining and packaging, I mean, I think that it's constant calibration what seems calibrated on tuesday when you do it seems uncalibrated on thursday when you look back at it sometimes uh you never get it 100 percent right but um it's a little bit of a guessing game but if you if you recognize that that these are two serious subjects to to screw around with then that's a good north star you also have the competing demand of assigning stories putting headlines putting decks on them putting social cells on them that get people to read them. You know, and I'm not. let's not make believe that, um, you, you know, we don't have that pressure. I, I want things that, I wanna publish pieces that people want to read uh, as well. And I want to make the message as clear as possible so that they click on it and then get good information.
0: I mean, here's another way of putting it. As you've been editing through the pandemic, how much more likely were you to say, hey, make this stronger, more declarative, Make this something that's going to pop more and grab people's attention. Versus, we should pull back on this because yeah. we don't know, and we should hedge it more, and we should show people there's a range of possibilities and right. be more qualified.
1: Well, we, we certainly published, you know, one of the things that we do on politics and in other areas that a lot of places don't do anymore is that we do publish a range of of, of opinions uh, and 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 viewpoints. Gets us into trouble, but that's the kind of useful trouble that we should get into. What I would say to that is, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit, this, this, um, the Jim Hamblin story from February 24th that set the tone for us, and I think set the tone for a lot of the media coverage going forward. Jim, again, is an MD, writes with great authority, and that was the story that was headlined, you're likely to get the coronavirus remember, February 24th, mm-hmm. um, and the deck, the, the subhead, the, the the line right underneath the headline is, most cases are not life-threatening, which is also what makes the virus a historic challenge to contain. So I think we calibrated the messaging uh, on the cell, if you will, carefully, and the story is just pure, you know, uh, pure science uh, presented in an accessible way, but it's, it's, it's just the science, but... I was surprised when Jim came and said, this is what I think is going to happen. I I think that this virus is going to move through much of the population. And the reason I think this is I've talked to a lot of experts who who know even more than I do about this. And I felt that the the head was justified. um, And I, I certainly felt that the deck underneath the head modulated the messaging there. But I also felt like it was important to. To, to say, and I think I think we've been proven out on this, it's probably better to err on the side when you have a new communicable disease that does have the capacity to kill large numbers of people. It's probably better to err on the side of saying, hey, everyone, this is really serious, and you're involved. That's why when we did Yasha Monk's piece, uh, cancel everything, before people were thinking about canceling everything, I felt, you know what? This is a, This is a good viewpoint to get out there and push it out hard, because if he's right, then he'll save lives with this message. If he's wrong,
0: the damage is much less. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the there is damage though, right? There's damage to his credibility. There's damage to the Atlantic's credibility. There's damage just in general to the next time the Atlantic wants to tell someone, hey, there's a giant threat coming. Sure. And, and by the way, you can play this out a million times and we will get stuff wrong in the future. We can't future-proof this stuff.
1: Most journalism is wrong most of the time because most journalism is oriented toward figuring out what's going to happen in the future. And since the future hasn't happened yet, it's very hard to get right most of the time. I think that our our record in, in this one in particular is pretty
0: strong. We should just have that tag at the end of all our stories. Most journalism are wrong most of the time, so Right, because it's about the future, beware, right. Let's talk about the future a little bit. Um, you, you framed this at, a little earlier on, you know, it, there's a spike of interest in, the, in this story. This story isn't going away um, by all reasonable expectations. This is a year or two year story, probably but I, I think we're already seeing, and, and we saw this with Trump, there's an initial long-lasting spike in interest and then eventually it dies down. How are you thinking about sort of as we settle into the pandemic and it doesn't go away, balancing mm-hmm. balancing the two major stories, which is the pandemic and then the election, with yeah. other things that people might want to right. consume because they just want to break?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, luckily for us, we're a general interest magazine. And so, you know, we talked about Pivoting a lot of people toward coronavirus related coverage, we can just as easily pivot them back. You know, one of the challenges here is that we operate at two speeds. We operate, one, one part of the Atlantic operates at 21st century speed, the other operates at 19th century speed. And so for the print magazine in particular, you know, we have to, we just had a large meeting about this, uh, as a matter of fact, you, know, you have to be very predictive. Like what, what are people gonna be interested in reading three to six months from now? And then assign accordingly. And at first, there was some anxiety inside uh, the organization about well is anybody going to read anything that we put in the magazine the print magazine um, that's not about coronavirus and my argument is people want to read all kinds of things and we have a good magazine so just let's do really interesting articles and they will be read and so we are more geared for general interest why general interest coverage than we are for very specific uh, health emergency coverage so park that aside for a minute the broad answer to your question is I think the rest of this year is a kind of steroidal news experience for everybody in our industry, for the readers and for the consumers, uh, because the pandemic story doesn't end, the economic story doesn't end, and the election story doesn't possibly end even after the election, because we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know I mean, we don't know who's going to challenge the results of the election, whatever those results may be. We don't know what Russian interference is going to look like. We don't know how a very different kind of president is going to react to possibly losing. We don't know what's going to happen inside the Democratic Party if the Democratic Party loses. We don't know anything. And so I think that I think that story continues. It's not as if let's just imagine for a minute that Donald Trump loses and he goes, well, huh, the people have spoken and then they have an inauguration and Joe Biden gets up there, takes the oath of office and goes and you know, hires um, quiet bureaucrats to quiet competent bureaucrats to run the problems of the country so we can all focus on something else. That doesn't seem like a likely scenario at the moment. So we're in this new hyperspeed environment, but when we come out of that hyperspeed environment, what I wanna come out with is, a lot of new readers who have come to appreciate what The Atlantic is. Uh, I don't want to come out with the same varied offering to people, especially in the feature area, so that there's a lot of things for them to read on The Atlantic and in The Atlantic
0: whenever they want. You describe this as a steroidal experience for news consumers. Um, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that one of the stories that's emerged in the last month or so is that uh, demand for news is way up, consumption for news is way up, and the organizations putting out the news are in real trouble. Uh, advertising has is, is fallen off a cliff and and won't come back anytime soon. It's a long wind up to How is The Atlantic performing as a business? Laureen Powell Jobs bought it, uh, what, three years ago? Uh, almost, yeah. Almost, um, and she is, Lorraine Powell Jobs specifically is sort of has been everyone's sort of uh, uh, business plan for a while. Like maybe Lorraine Powell Jobs (laughs) or someone like her will buy us, and that would be a hell of a slide deck. Here's our
1: business
0: plan. (laughs) Yeah, hope. Um, Here's a more specific way of putting it. Um, I was looking back at our coverage when when uh, Jobs, Lorraine Powell Jobs, bought The Atlantic. It said The Atlantic is profitable, and I was surprised. Because while I've been talking to people the last day or so, prepping for this interview, the conventional wisdom in in my business is that you guys are losing money. So are you making money? Were you making money? Are you losing money today?
1: No, This is where you get me in trouble because I'm way out of my lane. We very purposefully, a couple of years ago, after Lorene, and remember, Lorene is the majority owner. David Bradley, the owner of the last two decades, is still her partner uh, in in this. Um, So they're very much a co-ownership uh group the very deliberate plan was to try to grow it obviously when you invest in in growth you put yourself in the red you guys um, hired a ton of people not a, i wouldn't call it a ton you sent out press releases saying a, we're
0: hiring a ton of people and then you I announced. Never, we
1: never used the word ton okay. i'll tell you that right now no we hired we we did we did a, a a good amount of hiring um not as much by the way as it turned out that i wanted to do obviously um not as much as um eventually seemed prudent. um, Because remember, before the advertising cliff that we're experiencing right now, there is an advertising slide. Obviously, I mean, I don't have to tell you this. um, But you know, the the gobbling up of advertising by the big platforms um, predates this uh, uh, thrilling experience that we're all uh, having right now. Um, So yeah, you know, the Atlantic um, was investing in growth, and we face the same challenges that I think every quality media outlet um, faces. We have mitigation because we have a strong subscription model. Um, it's not fully matured yet, and so that's what we're trying to get to maturity on that. We have some of the same challenges that other people have vis-a-vis advertising, obviously. We have um, some special challenges in the sense that we have a, an excellent and very robust live events division that right now cannot, for obvious reasons, stage live events. So that is, uh, that is an area where we have real stress. There's a lot of stress on this organization like there is on many, I, I don't know a journalism organization that doesn't have stress on it. I like where we are compared to where we could be or where other people are, but um, we've got to be very careful in the coming period.
0: Do you imagine that you will have to have the cuts that we are reading about that my organization is going through as I'm recording this? Uh, my boss has told us to expect cuts. There's reports that there's going to be furloughs at Fox Media. Do you imagine that you'll either have to be cutting employees or cutting pay or or, or moves in that moves like that?
1: I am not going to predict anything right now. We're trying to do take all sorts of steps that allow us not to have to do anything. I am a catastrophist by nature. That's just my disposition. So I like to think about the, the worst things that can happen. And that allows us to plan in a way that keeps us from having to do the the, the worst things. I'm not going to comment at all about what the economic picture might look for us or the or the, the hiring picture or however you want to frame it in part I'm not just avoiding your question in part because who knows yeah I, I mean really, who knows? I mean holding fast seems to be um, a thing that i I mean I talked to other editors, obviously you know friends in in the business, and you know we just are hoping and praying and working toward a goal of holding fast, keeping to the keeping to the mission, recognizing by the way that the mission is more needed than ever and trying to figure out when better days come back. Um, and so that's my, that's my focus. And obviously, we have a very smart people running the company and they're thinking of all sorts of, uh, of ways of keeping us going. I would say, just finally, that we're very lucky in that the owners of the Atlantic believe in the mission and want it to succeed and are very, very happy with the journalistic success of, of the mission. Loreen Powell Jobs is in it for the long run. David Bradley has been and continues to be an excellent steward. Uh, and remember, he stewarded this through the 2008 downturn. He stewarded through the rise of the internet, which was a you know extinction level event for some people. So, I even though I'm a catastrophist by nature, I'm I, I feel fairly good about where we are. I don't feel great about the entirety of the industry,
0: but neither do you. Go going back to the the billionaire as, as majority owner uh, scenario, which again, a lot of people would like to have, since you do have an owner who likes your work, uh, is worth roughly $20 billion, give or take, why go through the paywall experience at all last fall? If, if you've got someone oh, who theoretically well, could, could stand you up for a long time without, <laughs> and, and, and make the stuff available to everyone, why why put a paywall up?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that that's an easy one. And, and we're all the same. Maybe it's not an easy one. Let me not say that at the outset. Laureen, like me, like everyone else involved in this company, wants this to be a profitable for-profit organization. I think institution journalism institutions that become nonprofits or go into foundation hands or or. Charity hands, um, I think they lose their vitality. I think I think being in the marketplace keeps us sharp. Uh, I think it forces us to make good, tough decisions. I think we want to compete with the rest of the day. And by the way, the 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 the, the, the situation you're describing is not that for us is not so out of the norm it's my understanding that most media companies are owned by wealthy people um it seems almost axiomatic or people who were maybe wealthier but still wealthy mm-hmm. um it certainly you know, used to and, be that way well no but i mean i, I mean my, my, my point is you know and my point is i'm not talking about and god knows you know i'm not talking about our owners in particular right now but there should be no assumption on the part of anyone that um uh, a a person of means who buys a publication wants to su- is doing it to subsidize it or turn it into a charity. I don't think Lorene's first goal with The Atlantic is to make money. Her her first goal is to support the best possible journalism uh, in America in order to advance truth, justice, and the American way. You know, I I, I mean that's why that's why she's in it, um, and thank God. And that's what makes her an excellent steward uh, of the Atlantic, but I think it's a lot, it takes a lot of nerve to go into a situation with someone who is wealthier than you are and just assume that they wanna give you money so that you could spend it without responsibility. I mean, and I don't, I seriously, seriously mean this. I would not want to be uh, the editor of a charity case. I really believe almost as a matter of ideology I really believe that there is a population in the world and in America that wants to pay for quality journalism and quality information. And so I think we've made a terrible mistake in the last 20 years in this business by not having faith in the quality of the product we're making and in the willingness of Americans to buy that quality and um, the paywall is just a restoration of that faith in a way. It's not, I mean, we've always been a paywall organization. In 1857, when this magazine was founded, a group of people got together in Boston, including Ralph Waldo Emerson and Longfellow, who were not overly commercially minded, right? Uh, And said, here's a plan. We're gonna make some really good stories and then we're gonna get people to pay us for them. And that was the paywall. The first paywall of the Atlantic was invented by Ralph Waldo Emerson. You know, sorry, I'm getting a little excited here.
0: Um, I'll I like that. it. I like. No, it. I mean, whenever I
1: start, whenever I, I start talking, about I like Rob it. Aldo, and I, I can
0: you know. Well, I know, I know, it's a trigger. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do think, I do think, asking people to pay and having faith that they'll pay is a is a reasonable and 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 smart argument for publications that have national reach. And I think where we're yeah. really in in trouble is that I don't think that scenario works at a, at a local level. Uh, we're seeing evidence of it all the time, and it's it's a. Real so that, so it might
1: not even be working in Los Angeles, was which is a major
0: world yep. center. Yeah, uh, and I want it to work there very much. Which obviously. also has a billionaire owner. Um, and it's a term that, and
1: that you use. I don't use that term. You use that term.
0: I, I listen. I've 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 written about billionaires for a long time, <laughs> I for know a lot have. of my life. So I know I'm, I'm fully comfortable with it. <laughs> um, and but you know that's someone who bought a newspaper uh, a year or two ago, has hired a lot of people put up a, a, a subscription product, that has not worked. Um, and they're in real trouble right now. And I think he's probably, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, and there's a bunch of scenarios. Yeah, and I that. just
1: hope that they, ho- I just hope that, see, and one of the things I do hope for all owners, um, I don't I don't have the reasonable expectation that these vulture firms that own some of the wonderful or formerly wonderful newspapers of America um, have this faith or even are non-sociopathic in their approach to this. But I hope that the good owners of the world understand that holding fast is is really important here because I do believe that the pandemic will be controlled and the economy will get better and will go on to better days. And so it's just a matter of, of of holding the line. Sorry. Anyway, no, no. I'll try. Yeah, to, no, I'll, I mean, I'll try just, to trigger.
0: It, I'll try to trigger you again. Yeah. Um, no. I, I, I'm, I'm easily triggered. You you sp- like you said. You spent a lot of time with Obama. Uh, you wrote a very in depth, classic Atlantic piece uh, on his foreign policy uh, a few years ago. I think, Long right? form. Long form. <laughs> and now we're in a world where you have a White House that seems to have no policy that is, you know, the best way to put the most polite way to put it is improvisational. Um, and and a lot of. certainly polite. And, and I, 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 think about this at vox.com a lot too, a lot of sort of the, the idea of having sort of brainy policy focused arguments and discussions um, in some ways to me seems just weirdly out of sync with a leadership that has no policy. Yeah. Um, or at least no coherent policy. And I wonder just how you think about writing that sort of stuff where Mm. you just have a capricious numbskull, um, and, and sort of the, the, the least smart people around him. And you can't have a good faith discussion about policy A or B, or should we tweak this? What's the right way to approach it? It seems like it's, it's almost in a separate world from day-to-day reality. I'm wondering how you think about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. I always refer to Abraham Lincoln as Atlantic subscriber number one, but you know he he counts forever as our as our leading subscriber. I'm very happy that President uh, George W. Bush reads the Atlantic. I'm very, very happy that President Obama is a longtime subscriber. Um, I covered the Obama administration. I spent a lot of time talking to him about his understanding of the world. I did a piece called the piece you're referring to called The Obama Doctrine, which was a very, very long piece built around these long conversations. A couple of years ago, I went to the White House, uh, this White House, the Trump White House, to um, see if I could re- replicate that experience a bit. Um, <laughs> and um, I mean, with eyes wide open, obviously, yeah. but I had a couple of meetings with different people in, in the administration, including the true believers, not the secret eye rollers. And um, I would ask the question, what is the Trump doctrine? You know, trying to like do a mirror kind of exercise. And um, one person very close to him uh, said, the Trump doctrine is we're America, bitch. Um, and I wrote a piece. I sort of said, okay, we're in a different, you know, universe. I, I knew we were in a different universe. That was yep. my conclusive proof. I wrote a piece saying this, that, that, that people close to the president define the Trump doctrine as we're America, bitch. I think you know maybe we're seeing the manifestation of that right now with the World Health Organization decision. And um, no, I, I, wanna, I wanna be careful about wording what I'm gonna say, but The Atlantic is meant to be a magazine that helps thinking people think harder or think better. That's a I'm riffing off something that one of the editors 50 years ago said. Uh, And um, so there's a presumption of thoughtfulness and, you know, we're 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 in a different era. We're not in an era of deep American thoughtfulness right now. So it poses some challenges to cover. Luckily, we have um, a great core of analysts and commentators. I mean, we are semi inadvertently become home to some of the most powerful voices in Republican dissident circles, David Frum, Pete Wayner, uh, and, and, and so on. And, uh, Andy Ferguson and, and, and a lot of great writers. And so in lieu of grappling with the ideas emanating from the white house, because they aren't really ideas, they're just impulses or glandular secretions masquerading as impulses, masquerading as thoughts. Um, Am I giving away what I think a little bit too much? I just read like
0: granular secretions. I'm going to Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of,
1: it's actually kind of gross when you think about it. Um, But there is this group of people who are doing very, very hard thinking about what is conservatism? What is the future of the Republican party? I love hosting that, that conversation uh, at, at the Atlantic and again, I'm not going to trigger myself into like waves of enthusiasm over the Atlantic and its historic role in American media and society. But I would say that um, we were founded in order to be the magazine. This is what the founders wanted, to be the magazine of the American idea, to illuminate the American idea. Something that they did that was very interesting is they never defined that in their opening manifesto what the American idea was. They sort of left it for the writers of the Atlantic to argue it out. And so in lieu of covering a thoughtful white house, we get to cover um, thoughtful people from different political persuasions and streams arguing amongst themselves. Uh, uh, and that's interesting. Uh,
0: yeah. So, sh- yeah, I was going to, I was going to say the Atlantic tagline should be where the Atlantic bitch, but so, it, so <laughs> I, I guess shorter would be so, right. So off brand, uh, I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> I mean, but I, this is obvious, but yeah, uh, you're arguing that look, ideas still matter. That even if we're in a world where people making decisions and who are in charge and who are voting aren't being thoughtful, it's still incumbent upon some of us to be thoughtful and we're going to continue to be that way. And we think there's a larger audience than than you might imagine for. Thought. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's very interesting to see how well those pieces do um, just in terms of raw, you know, raw audience. And it's a, it's a crude metric of, of interest, but it, it is a metric nonetheless. And. Um, I think one of the most interesting stories we're facing as a country in the coming years is uh, is what does the Republican Party become after this guy? It's still it's also an interesting story. What is the Democratic Party becoming? But obviously the Republicans are the one that are extremists right now.
0: Well, let's come back and have some version of that conversation in the next year. Or so can we can we make that agreement? That would be that would be great. Okay, I'm going to let you go. So you continue to go kick ass. Um, that's my Mike <laughs> creation description of it. Uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, thank you for your time. Thanks very much. Be well.